James chapter 4, if you want to turn there, uh, we're going to be reading, uh, start picking it up in, in verse 11 here in just a moment. Uh, but uh, we're, we're sort of in the middle of a major section of this letter, and, and James has been, uh, has been developing the theme that real faith produces genuine humility. And we've already uh, seen how he, he contrasted those who are wise in their own eyes to, with those who have humble wisdom from God. And then we looked at, at the cause of quarrels and conflicts, which is envious and selfish ambitions, um, uh, which are cured only by, by submitting to God in true humility. And in, in today's passage, James goes a step further and, and reveals more ways uh, we, uh, we assert an, an ignorant, uh, not an ignorant, what is ignorant, but an arrogant spirit. A little bit of difference there. Um, and the, the first that we're going to talk about tonight has to do with the way we often view other people. James deals with our tendency to take the place of God in other people's lives as we judge and we criticize them. And the second has to do with the way we view ourselves. And in, in those verses, he deals with our tendency to take the place of God in our own lives as we make presumptions and we boast in ourselves. So in both cases, uh, whether playing judge over others or playing king for ourselves, we err by playing roles that are reserved for God alone. And that's what he talks about in verses 11 through 17. So what we're going to start, we're going to read verses 11 and 12 because that's that first section where he's talking about dealing with other people. And this is what it says. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? The, the uh, objective of playing God in the lives of others is to imagine oneself as superior to other Christians and to put them down in various ways. And, and, and so the, the, the one who takes on God's role becomes a, a, a self-qualified critic. Uh, somebody who stands over a, a fellow Christian assuming a position of, of superiority. And, and there are two simple rules in this game that they play, and they're found in verse 11. The first is to speak against a brother or sister in Christ. And what, what does that look like? What does this look like to speak against one another? Well, Scripture gives us several examples using the very same Greek word, which is, which is kataleo, uh, excuse me, katalaleo. There's an extra lie in there. <laughs> Um, which, uh, uh, and, and, and these are found both in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as well as the Greek New Testament. And uh, where we find this word is, first of all, is Aaron, when Aaron and Miriam spoke against Moses for marrying a Cushite woman. In Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 and verse 8. And you remember that story. They, they complained and they spoke out against Moses because they didn't like his wife. And then another time is when the people of Israel, the Bible says that they spoke against God by complaining about their conditions in the wilderness. That's in Numbers 21, verse 5. The psalmist talks about a wicked person who, he says, will speak against his brother, slandering him with lies. That's in Psalm 50, verse 20. And then uh, another famous one that you'll recognize is Job's friends, and using the term loosely, <laughs> who it says that he, they spoke against Job insulting him. And then in the New Testament, in 1 Peter 2, verses, uh, verse 12 and, and 1 Peter three sixteen, 
Peter says that unbelievers will uh, speak against Christians, slandering them as evildoers. So that's how this word is used throughout Scripture. So what does this recounting of Caralaleo tell us? Well, let me, let me just pull it, put it bluntly. James is suggesting here that Christians who speak against their brothers or sisters in Christ include themselves in that biblical register of rebellious mumblers, moaning grumblers, deceitful slanderers, crushing insulters, and wicked slanderers. Not exactly the best of company. And the, the Greek word translated slander, the very first uh, phrase, the very first sentence, it re really refers to any form of speaking evil against pe people. But to slander means to make false charges in order to damage a person's reputation. So let me show, show you how this game works. You, you speak against the other person in the ears of the hearer, hoping to lower their estimate of the, of the person. And in the process, uh, you, you hope to make yourself look a little bit better than the other person. So this is the idea of speaking against and with the idea of, of putting someone down. How many, uh, how many of you have ever known somebody that seemed like the only way they could feel good about themselves is if they were putting somebody else down. But the truth is, when you're speaking against and putting other people down, you're not exalting yourself. You're actually lowering yourself uh, that much more. But, but the person who does this, of course, they, they have to cover up the, the malicious intent, but with creative sentimentality. So, so the person that does this always begins with statements like this. Now stop me if I'm wrong, but... And then nobody ever stops them, right? And if you tried, they wouldn't stop anyway. Or they'll say something like, now, I don't, I don't mean to be critical, but I'm telling you, uh, anytime I, I can tell you as a pastor, anytime I've had anybody come to me and say, now, I don't mean this as a criticism. It's always followed by a criticism. Uh, am I right, Pastor Jason? <laughs> Have you noticed that? Uh, or they might say something like, perhaps I shouldn't say this, but... Let me just say, you. anytime you have to start a sentence by, maybe I shouldn't say this, don't say it. Don't say it. Or, they, or they'll say something like, you know, I really like so-and-so as a person. But th these are all ways to just mask the fact that you're ready to do something that is absolutely unbiblical, absolutely sinful. We're going to see uh, some of the reasons why tonight. But then James also doesn't talk about just putting down other people and speaking against them, but, but he also brings up the horrible habit of judging other believers. And these two really do go hand in hand. You know, um, in fact, you, you're not going to be able to criticize another person without making a judgment about them. So they really do go hand in hand, speaking against a brother or sister and then judging him or her, slandering a brother or sister and, uh, and condemning him or her. And the Bible repeatedly condemns judgmental attitudes and actions. And, I, you know, now the world, one of the, it used to be, if you ask people in the world, you know, to quote a verse, there were certain verses they would quote. Now, that the, the verse that they quote has changed in recent years. Because now if you ask people who don't know the Lord uh, anything about Scripture, the only verse they know is, judge not lest you be judged. That's what they want to say. Um, and, and to be honest, where, what Jesus is talking about, there's other places where the Bible forbids judging other people. Uh, but, but the idea behind it is not that you can never make any sort of judgment, but he's dealing with people who, are, who have uh, a judgmental, hypocritical attitudes. 
That's what he's dealing with. When Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, he's talking to the Pharisees who were some of the biggest hypocrites of the day. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 4. How can you say to your brother, let me, let, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? See, there's the, hypoc there's the hypocrisy there that he's dealing with. Romans 2, 3, Paul said, so when you, a mere man, pass, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? So that's talking about hypocrisy. So the Bible, when it forbids judging, it's targeting self-serving, malicious judgment, but it also actually specifically encourages wise, righteous judgment. Does that consist? In fact, James, in his letter right here, he's, he makes judgments about the people that he's writing to and tells them you're sinning in this area. So uh, the, the, there's, to say that you know, we can't take this and say, well, we should never judge anybody in any, any way. But here, here's the problem. The, the, the principle of this verse does not prohibit exposing sin with righteous intent. Okay, our society, and if, if you're not aware of this, this is, I don't think this is going to be a really, a, really going to be a revelation to anybody. But our society tells us that if we speak out against any sin, then we are being judgmental. If we say that, any, that a, something a person does or a way that they live or whatever, if we say that it's sin, they say, oh, that's so judgmental. But that's not what James is talking about here. That, that's not being judgmental. There, there are many, many things that God has clearly declared in His Word to be sinful. Right? So if God has said that telling a lie is sinful then when you tell a lie, if I call you out and say, you know what, you just lied, that makes you a liar, that is sinful, that is not me passing judgment on you. Uh, to, to openly declare those things as sin is not an act of personal judgment. What, in that instance, what's happening is I'm simply stating what God has already judged to be sinful. I'm not making a personal judgment. I'm not reporting to you what I think. I'm telling you what the Bible says about that. So if the Bible is clear on a subject, then I'm not making a personal judgment on that, on that subject. How, we, we cannot, however, though, uh, pass judgment based on things such as personal convictions. And, and we've, known, we've all known, if you've been, especially in Pentecostal church, uh, the old time Pentecostal churches, we've all known people who had certain personal convictions and they passed judgment on everybody who didn't agree with that. You know, back in the day, I mean, way, way back, you know, um, I remember, you know, it was, it was sinful to walk into a movie theater. Uh, I remember days when it was sinful to go into a bowling alley. I've never understood, you know, I get, just because they drank beer and smoked in there, you know. And, and well, the problem with both of those are nowhere does the Bible say anything about either one of those. So it's perfectly appropriate if somebody has a personal conviction and the Spirit of God tells them, I don't want you going in there. And in that case, that person should absolutely avoid that. But what, where we fail and we pass judgment incorrectly in a self-righteous way is when we take situations like that and we pass judgment on somebody else who doesn't have the same personal conviction. And, and so... Uh, uh, we, we have to be aware this is what he's talking about. We, we might think that criticizing, that just criticizing a church member or maybe spreading a, 
you know, a little bit of interesting gossip. That's not that serious, especially when you can pair it with other sins. I mean, people do other things that are so much worse, right? Nevertheless, we've got to realize the Bible sees it as a sin of utmost seriousness. This is a big deal. In fact, God, there are places in the New Testament where Paul lists these series of sins, works of the flesh, that, that sort of thing. And very often, he includes murder in the same list with gossip. And also, interestingly enough, often in the same list with disobedient to parents. So it's a lot more serious than what we realize sometimes. But James says uh, that uh, uh, not, the Bible sees this as utmost seriousness, but, but I didn't finish my thought there. Uh, and the reason it's so serious is because it breaks the law of love. That's why it's so serious. Because Jesus said that we're to love our neighbor as ourself. Um, and, and not only that, when I make it pass a judgment on you, Another reason why this is so serious is because when I pass a judgment on you, I am usurping God's authority. He's, James said, he's the only, uh, right, right, the, the only judge. So if, I'm trying, if I pass a judgment, then I'm putting myself in his place. He says, James says that if you tear down and judge your fellow Christian, you became, become a lawbreaker. Now, that's interesting because to which law is, does James refer here? Well, we know it's not the law of Moses because there's nothing referred to there. It's certainly not any of the additional quote-unquote laws of Judaism that were added after that. But James refers to the law that he's been advocating throughout this letter. He has refer referred to it multiple times. In chapter 1, verse 25, he described it as the, as the perfect law, or the law of liberty. And in chapter 2, verse 8, it's, he calls it the royal law which is love your neighbor as yourself. So the law that we break is the law of love. And Jesus, Jesus illustrated how this, how this law kind of plays itself out when he said in Matthew 7, 12, in everything do to others what you would have them do to you. Is that, that's really a kind of a working manual to say this is how it looks when you're loving one another. And, and if a believer speaks against another believer, he is disobey, disobeying that law because he's not showing love and he's not treating others as he would like to be treated. I mean, does anybody here want to be judged uh, by a, uh, by a, a self-righteous hypocrite? Is there anybody here you're looking for that? No, <laughs> not me. Uh, but, but when a person does it, what they're doing is they're showing disregard for this law of, of love. He's saying, he's, and James talks about how when you do this, you're actually passing judgment when you judge another believer, you're actually passing judgment on the law of love. You're sitting in judgment on it because such behavior, it does more than just break the law of love. What it does is it treats the law, that law, the law of love, as if it does not matter and is as if it's not in force. So in short, it, it judges the law. If, if I know the law of love and I choose to judge you anyway, then what I'm doing is... I am judging the law and I am finding that it is not worthy of my adherence, that I don't have to obey that because somehow I'm better than that law. And, and, and James says you're in a bad spot if that's where you are. The, a judgmental attitude manifests itself in all sorts of ways, but in, in all cases, the self-made judge breaks the law of love every single time. 
But you know, I think the real problem with judging others is that it comes perilously close to playing God. James reminds us, I already referred to this, he reminds us in verse 12 that there is only one lawgiver and judge. Only one. Only one person who gets to lay down the law and then only one person who gets to judge whether you've broken the law. Only one, he says. And the final, final indictment there in verse 12 packs a really personal punch. He, he's saying, you there, who are you to judge your neighbor? And it's very personal. You, we, could, we could paraphrase the indictment this way. We could say, who do you think you are? Or maybe, maybe we could rephrase it like this. Who died and made you God? Right? Only God can pass judgment on a person's actions and motives. So that's the problem, is that we don't see motives. We don't see what's going on behind the scenes. Only God can pass judgment on a person's actions and motives without fault, without hypocrisy, and without spite. Only God can do that. There's nobody here that can say, I can pass judgment on somebody perfectly every single time. Only God can do that. That's why it belongs to Him. Charles Swindoll, I read today a, a, a story that he wrote of an event back in his seminary days that haunted him uh, to, to the day that he wrote this. He, he wrote this. He said, we had a guest missionary speaker who did a lousy job. This is when he was in seminary. He had a guest missionary speaker who did a lousy job with his presentation. Afterward, a group of us stood at the, in the back and badmouthed the message. We ripped him apart with a smug, critical spirit. And we weren't concealing our scorn because an underclassman overheard us. He targeted me for censure, he says, because I hate to admit it, I was one of the officers of the student body. I should have known better. The, that younger man grabbed me by the arm and said, Chuck, you don't know all the facts. What do you mean, I said? That was a pitiful message. He responded, did you know that two hours before the message, his wife called and told him that his youngest son had been killed? Did you know that three months before, his wife was diagnosed with terminal cancer? And in spite of all that, he still came and delivered his message. That, that younger student had every right to confront me, Swindoll says. You, he says, you can't imagine the shame I felt. I had judged and spoken against a brother in Christ who delivered this poor message under unimaginably difficult circumstances. I didn't know the facts. Far too often Christians criticize others before we get all the facts. We observe an event, catch a few words of a conversation, or gather a handful of random facts, and then we leap to conclusions and start flapping our jaws about it, and the jabbering catches on and spreads. And before you know it, the gossip has suddenly become news. There's nothing more contagious in a church or a student body or a business or staff or organization or even a home than a negative spirit. That infection is contagious. It spreads like a cold in a kindergarten classroom. He goes on and he writes, Thankfully, the younger seminarian had the guts to confront me about my judgmental attitude before it got out of control. He appropriately reminded me that I wasn't qualified to pass judgment on that missionary. The principle for us that bears repeating, only God is qualified to judge because only He has all the facts. 
Anybody ever been in that place where you leaped to judgment before you knew the facts? I have. He goes on, that's dealing with playing God over other people. Let's look at playing God over our own lives. Verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So in verses 11 and 12, James addressed the, the problem of playing God in the lives of others. And now in verses 13 through 16, he looks at playing God over our own lives. And the, the objective in this game now is to imagine ourselves as the final authority over our own lives and, and to live like we're the final authority. So you, you sequester God into his own compartment of your, of your life and you keep him there, except in a rare instance where you're really in a bind. And this is how a lot of Christians live. We, we, we want God around in case we have an emergency. We, we want him, you know, like a, like a fire extinguisher, break glass in emergency. We, it's like call on God in emergency. And we, we want him in control when, when we really need some help. But now, now the truth is most people wouldn't admit to banishing God to the back room of their lives. Nevertheless, there are many, many Christians that assign God sovereignty over certain tasks in their lives, but they keep the daily and the mundane for themselves. God, God became, becomes the, the boss of the religious issues and moral manners and questions of faith. That's his realm. That's his part. But then we, we think, well, but we'll handle things like finances and relationships and business, business decisions and family decisions. We tell ourselves that God couldn't, couldn't care less about those things as long as he has our hearts. Well, at, at the core of this false philosophy, though, is the idea that we're the masters of our own destiny. That's the lie that's at the middle of it. Such people recite the hymn of self-reliance encapsulated in, in the verse of William Ernest Henley's poem, which is called Invictus, and probably everybody here has heard this poem but one part of it, he says, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Well, that's the philosophy of the person who plays God in his or her own life. You know, pray only for important things. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Call your own shots. Now, the rules to live like this, the, the, way to, the rules to play this game are found in verse 13. Let me break it down step by step. First thing you do is set your own schedule. He said, the person who says today or tomorrow, set your own schedule, today or tomorrow. Second, select your own path. We will go up to this or that city. Third, place your own limits. We'll spend a year there. Fourth, arrange your own activities. We'll carry on business. And fifth, predict your own outcome and we'll make money. That's the, that's the agenda that they have laid out. But, they, but in all of that, they've never even thought to consider, is this what God has planned for my life? And I want you to notice something here. None of the activities James describes is negative in and of itself. There, there's nothing wrong with planning ahead. 
Although some people, you know, you would think that they were allergic to it or something. But there's nothing wrong with planning ahead. There's nothing evil about setting a schedule. There's nothing bad about engaging in business. There's nothing sinful about making a profit. In fact, what James is really talking about here, he's describing the everyday affairs of a normal life. And that's his point. Precisely his point. He's saying this is about everyday life. This is not about just the, the big momentous things that come our way. He's saying this is about God's sovereignty in our lives every day, just in our normal everyday life, carrying on, doing business, doing whatever we do. Because God is our sovereign Lord, we must consider His will in every aspect of our lives. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying to go so far as some people, you know, some people... Uh, have gone so far off, uh, off base with this, you know, where they get up in the morning and look in the closet and say, God, what, what is your will concerning which color shirt I wear today? That's not what I'm talking about. That, that's silliness. That's foolishness. God is like, you know, now if, if he does he say, wear the black one today, <laughs> do it because there might be, a, you know, you're going to spill something yourself that day. He's probably protecting you. I don't know. But, but that's not what I'm talking about. But uh, I'm saying that just to, to realize that what, as we go through our days, we plan our days out, as we look ahead, there's nothing wrong with that. But in the middle of all that, we have to have this awareness uh, in our minds, in the back of our minds saying, this is what I'm planning, but it's all subject to change if God makes his will clear that he wants me to do something different. James point, begins pointing out problems with a, Go it alone attitude toward life in verse 14. First, he points out that as mere mortals, we have no idea what the future will bring. Right? I mean, these people were planning as if their future was guaranteed. Yeah, I'm going to stay there for a year. Well, the, the future is uncertain. And because the future is uncertain, it's even more important that we completely depend on God because. He's the only one that knows the future. So we need to listen to him that much more carefully because of the fact that we don't. We, we don't know what will happen today, much less uh, what the next year or two are going to look like. How many of you thought that the years 2020 through 2021, uh, the end of that, how many of you before that all started thought that, that those, these past years, two years were going to look like the way they looked? <laughs> Nobody did. I mean, even when it got started, you couldn't dream how, how far uh, things would go sideways. Every one of us is one heartbeat away from death and one rude intrusion of an unexpected event can put an end to all of your plans. So, I mean, the truth is we could live into our 90s or we could die tonight. Nobody knows. That's, well, that's not exactly true. Only God knows. The second problem is that playing, and this is related very closely to this, playing God with our own lives is risky because we have no assurance of, of a long life. James describes our lives as a vapor which appears suddenly and dissipates quickly. I want you to imagine yourself on, in the middle of a sub-zero winter day. Okay, around here, maybe not sub-zero very often, but a very, very cold winter day. And you're bundled up in your thick coat. You've got your stocking cap on and gloves. And you've got a scarf wrapped around your, your, your neck twice. And you're out there in the cold air. And, you, and as you exhale, as you exhale, what happens? 
your warm breath forms a small puff of white vapor that lingers for just a second, then it's gone. Gone. That's life. That's life. And it's not just the life of somebody who, who dies young. Even a relatively long life just flies by. People in their 90s will tell you that they feel like it was just yesterday that they graduated from school. The, the truth is, youth does not last. Can I get an amen? Before you know it, poof, the vapor of life dissolves. And it happens fast. I read somebody who said it like this, about the time your face clears up, your mind gets fuzzy. Isn't that the truth? The third thing is that we have no right to ignore God's will in any aspect, any aspect of our lives. If we are His, we don't have the right to ignore His claim to sovereignty. In verse 15, James provides the necessary corrective to the folly of playing God. He says this, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now, for many, many believers today, those two words, God willing, have become nothing more than a cliche. Uh, they've become an obligatory tag-on that we superstitiously attach to our plans. So and we do it more for image management. We want to make sure that we're not perceived as presumptuous. We, we don't want people to think we're not spiritual, so we tag it on. You know, but, but the, the reality is, listen, this, and this is... We have to really examine our hearts to see if this is true for us. But there are many, many people who say that they believe in God. But in reality, they are what, what I would call practical atheists. Practical atheists. In other words, they say they believe in God. They believe in God in their head, but they don't live in such a way as if there really is a God. In, in, in the way they make decisions, the way they plan for the future, they live as if God doesn't exist. They take no account of God's sustaining care. They don't take account of God's uh, grace. They act as if they are self-sufficient and in control. They take credit for all the good that they experience. But, but, but we have to remember self-reliance and independence rightfully, rightfully belong to God alone. James's instructions to say, if the Lord wills, what that does is it reflects an attitude in our hearts, but it also reflects an orientation toward life, that this is how I'm going to approach life, that it's all about what God wants and being aware and conscious of saying, I want to make sure that whatever I plan, whatever I do matches up with what God's will is. So by saying if the, if the Lord wills, or we say God willing, something like that. It's not just a tag on. What we're doing is we're trying to orient our life in such a way to make sure that we keep it in, uh, in the forefront of our minds to say, as I make plans, I need to make sure that God's in the middle of it. I've got I've to remember He's the Lord. He's the sovereign. He's the master of my faith. He's the captain of my life. He's the one. And so I need to know what he wants me to do. And it, it means submitting ourselves humbly before the one true God who, who is entitled to be Lord of all things in our lives, not just of a few things. It means erasing from our minds some dichotomies, 
Erasing from our minds the secular, sacred-secular dichotomy. A lot of people live as if they have a church life, that's their sacred life, and then they go out and they have their work life, that's their secular life. We've got to understand that there's no such dichotomy, there's no such division in life. All of life is sacred, all of life belongs to Him. It erases, we have to erase the heavenly and earthly dichotomy. We have to erase the spiritual and physical dichotomy, the, the, the things that delegate some things to God and some things to us. We have to remember it all. It all is, it belongs to Him. God governs all things, even the mundane, mundane daily decisions. He owns it all. And the alternative to submitting all things to God is an evil, boastful arrogance, living life as if we are the masters of our fate and we are the captains of our souls. And James says in verse 16 that all such boasting is evil. You know, I want to throw this in. When we talk about plans and the will of God and being humble before Him, I really believe that the most dangerous moments in life are not when we're going through difficult times because those tend to be the times when we really do turn to the Lord and focus in on our dependency upon Him. But I think the most dangerous moments in life occur when a plan that we have engineered succeeds. I think that's the most dangerous time for us because, because that, that moment of satisfaction can more easily become pride than it can become humility. The Bible teaches us that even our, even our greatest successes ought to be submitted to God. That if we are successful in any endeavor, it's because God has blessed us. And, and we, we remember that. We keep that as our focus. Either we, either we, are, we humble ourselves before God or the Bible says we will be humbled before God. It's better to fall on the, the rock and be broken than to have the rock fall on you and be crushed. Uh, it, it, the reality is everyone will recognize God's authority someday. Everyone will humble themselves before Him. That's what Paul wrote in Philippians 2 when he said, So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father Every one of us is going to humble ourselves in His presence. Every one of us is going to fall on our knees and say, you truly are the Lord of the universe. There truly is no one like you. You really are the one who, is, who has conquered death, hell, and the grave. And you are truly the ruler over all of creation. You are Lord. That's what's going to happen. Now, for those of us who follow Christ, that should have happened already. We should already be, be making that confession. But the truth is, uh, that's, a, that's a humbling moment. That is a moment where we humble ourselves before Him and every person is going to humble themselves before His authority at, one, uh, at some time in, in this creation. Then James concludes by pointing out two ways to stop playing God in our lives. And both of them relate to true humility and flows from authentic faith. Uh, verse 17, he said this, Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it Sins. That is a really difficult verse right there because we tend to think of sin as something that we commit, something that we do. But James is referring to what a lot of people refer to as sins of omission. Uh, where we, if we know something that he said to do 
and we don't do it, if we know what's right, if we know what's good, if we know what we ought to do, if we choose not to do it, that that is also a sin. Uh, so he says, first, know the right thing to do. Then second, it's really, really kind of simple. Start doing the right thing. He says, that's how you deal with this. God has a standard of right living that transcends our own interests and pursuits. Every human being on this planet has their own set of interests and pursuits. You know, some people it's massive and grandiose. Some people it's, it's uh, just getting the one thing I, want, I need to get through this day. But we all have our own interests and pursuits. And God has a standard of living that transcends all of that. Something He wants to do that goes well beyond any of that. And He wants to guide us along that, the path that He has set out for us. To make that happen requires staying close to His Word and, makes, and we have to shape our path according to His wisdom. But, but that's only half the solution because that's, that's the half of knowing the good that, that we ought to do. We, we need to know what God wants from us. But knowing it isn't enough. We need to do it. Again, James is tying our faith to our actions. It's not enough to know what God wants me to do. It's not enough to know the good that I ought to do. I have to do it. And if I refuse to do it, then I'm sinning. Why am I sinning? Because I am taking control of my life and doing what I want regardless of what God says His will for me is. I'm usurping the, the, the very throne of God in that moment. If we continue to live as though God isn't interested in certain areas of our lives, that is sin. If we try to call our own shots, make our own plans, do our own thing, we are not doing what God wants us to do. And that is the point of James's final warning here. That's where it ties in here. Uh, and I'm sure that, you know, you can apply that verse in all kinds of other ways as far as the good that we ought to do, that if we don't do it, that that's sin. But I think in the context here, it's very specific. Uh, the very specific application for us tonight is, is just simply if we know that we need to not only be aware of God's will, but we need to submit ourselves to His will. If we refuse to submit ourselves to His will, then we are sinning. That is, that's what he's saying. Know the right way then humbly submit to it. And I think for us, you know, we, we all, everybody that I see in this room and probably the people that are online watching this, you, you, I, think, I think everybody here that, that I know of that is a follower of Christ, we want, we want our lives to fulfill God's plan for us. That's what we want. Uh, the, the, the problem is we just don't know, there's no way for us to know the twists and turns that come down the road. So it makes it very difficult for us to plan and say that, uh, you know, but, but how do we approach it then? Well, I think something I said a few weeks ago, I don't remember if it was on Wednesday night or if it was on a Sunday morning, but I think we have to remember today is the only day I can give him. I can't, I can't give the Lord next week because it doesn't belong to me. I don't know what's going to happen next week. 
I can, I can have a mindset that says, no matter what happens next week, I'm, I'm surrendered to the Lord. But what, what I can do is I can give him this moment. I can say today is the day I'm going to live for God and I'm going to live for him full force. And, and if we live that way, then no matter when our lives end, no matter what happens tomorrow, the next day or next week, no matter when our lives end, if we live that way, we will have fulfilled God's plan for us. Because we are living full force for Him, for His will, doing what He calls us to do. That's the answer. That's the key. So we just need to be careful that we're not, we don't play God in, in finding ourselves criticizing and judging others. And we don't play God over our own lives. Because not only am I not, not, not God over you, but I'm not even God over my own life. I have to recognize His sovereign claim on my life. That he, I belong to him. Every day, every moment, everything, it all, it's all his. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you're, you have a, a sovereign will and a sovereign plan for each one of us. And God, forgive us for those times when we begin to shape plans for the future and and determine decisions that we're going to that they're going to affect our future and those times when we have done that without ever even taking time to consider is this God's will. And Lord right now we just want to we just want to submit humbly to you and your sovereignty you to your lordship and say Lord in the midst of all those plans and we know there's nothing wrong with making plans but in the midst of all those things God let we want to submit all of that to you and to your sovereignty and say, Lord, this is the plan. This is what I believe you've laid out in front of me. But at any moment, Lord God, I belong to you. So if you want to change the course, I will follow you. Lord, I pray you'd help us to live that way. Help us not to be people of, of uh, criticism or judgment. Let's, let's not have a negative spirit. But God, I pray that we would be people who reflect the love of Christ that says, um, that, that though all of us have sinned, He still loves all of us and He can cleanse us and forgive us. So God, I pray You'd help us to walk in that way to remember that You are God and that we are not. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.